when I watch that video, I'm reminded that God is in the business of restoration. Uh, he's in the business of healing and forgiveness. He's in the business of restoring sinners and reconciling his enemies. Uh, he is the one true living God, and he has a plan for each of us. And I don't know if you feel like a piece of broken and forgotten wood, um, but uh, two by four or two by two, I think I'm turning more in, into an eight by eight these days. But uh, since the beginning, God has been faithful to his promise to work into the lives that those he has created. Uh, and uh, he's never messed up. He's never blown it. Better than the Blue Jays, he bats a thousand all the time. And if we fail to surrender ourselves to him, we're likely to go through life um, trial and error, stumbling along. But um, if we surrender ourselves, uh, we can be turned into something beautiful, uh, like we just watched in that, in that video. His word says he will do it, and he is faithful to the promise. And um, that's a nice segue into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in a series. It's a series called Realizing the Promises of God, uh, and uh, it's part of a walk through the historical book of Joshua uh, from the Bible, from the Old Testament. So it's the book of Joshua, uh, and it is a historical book. It's what we call one of the historical books, actually. Uh, it's, uh, it's about true historical events, no parables, no visions, which makes it easy to understand. It's just true historical events laid down. Uh, and uh, the main actor through all of the book of Joshua is God, and it's God doing something amazing. Uh, Steve, if we could show the timeline there now. So uh, we're going to talk about Joshua, the book of Joshua, uh, this is uh, uh, just to focus you in on when this was written, when these events took place. Uh, the arrow kind of identifies it here. It's approximately around 1300 or 1350 BC. So 1,300 or so years before the birth of Christ. Uh, and at this time, the nation of Israel has escaped from Egypt. They've already escaped from Egypt under the, under the leadership of Moses. They've walked across the Red Sea. Uh, they've been living in the desert and um, under the leadership of Moses. And specifically at this time, they're east of the Jordan River. And there was a young aide, a young aide to Moses, and his name was Joshua. Right, okay, so we're talking about a guy named Joshua. He was an Israelite. Uh, he was born in Egypt, actually, under slavery when they were in Egypt, when they were enslaved to Egypt. He was born in Egypt. He escaped with Moses. He walked across the Red Sea, and he watched in awe as God closed those waters in around the Egyptian army and completely wiped it out. And so he's now living in uh, uh, the desert. Uh, he followed Moses into the desert, and not long after that, um, God calls Joshua to lead a makeshift Israelite army. Uh, against the Amalekites, and he defeats them. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 17. And so early on, Joshua is established as a warrior, as a military leader. And it's not long after that that, uh, that Moses selects him as one of the 12 to go in and spy out the promised land because they have an inheritance in the land of Canaan. And so you know the story. Uh, they go in, they check out the promised land, and they return. And only Joshua and only Caleb are found to be faithful. The other 10 guys can only grumble about uh, and complain about how small they are, uh, and they look like grasshoppers. And I don't have the text for you here this morning, but this is what uh, it is recorded in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, it says, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, 
tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through is ex uh, and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because he, we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. As it turns out, they failed to persuade the nation of Israel to realize the promise. God is not pleased for what he calls contempt toward him, and he threatens to wipe out the entire Israelite nation right there and then in the desert. And Moses pleads with God, and God shows mercy toward Israel, but Israel must first suffer for its unfaithfulness, spending 40 years in the desert, one year for each day that they had explored the promised land. Those 40 years pass, and even Moses finally dies. And this is where the book, this is where the book Joshua, I say all that just to bring you to this point, Moses dies, and the book of Joshua starts. In my last sermon uh, on chapter 1 of Joshua, we see God keep the promise. In chapter 1, in verse 2, the Lord says, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's how the book actually starts. Moses dies. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give you. So God is faithful to his promise. And he says to Joshua, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to, the, to their ancestors. And these were meant to be words of encouragement to Joshua. Uh, God promises him clear and certain success, and he tells him to be strong, and he tells him to be courageous. But as a military commander, he has to make some decisions, and he decides, actually, uh, to first conquer Jericho. So they're sitting uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, and they have to make some decisions, and Joshua decides to attack Jericho. This was a mighty Canaan city. Uh, it was a fortress. And of course, uh, there is a Jericho today, actually. I didn't think there was a Jericho anymore, but I typed it into Google Earth. Turns out there's a Jericho. Maybe we can show that picture there, Steve. There you go. So it does exist. Um, you can type it into Google Earth. It's in the heart of Israel, about five miles uh, north of the Dead Sea, about five miles uh, west of the Jordan, and about 17 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. And there's people living there. There's about 18,000 people living there today. It's a modern society, uh, and it's a popular tourist site. There's even a cable car that you can ride, and you can actually travel over top of the ancient Jericho um, ruins, which are still there as well, about uh, two miles northeast of the city center. And I've never seen them, but um, this is what they look like today. It's basically uh, a scarred piece of land that uh, anthropologists and uh, archaeologists have been digging at for over a hundred years or more, uh, different famous archaeologists, and they've conflicted with one another, and there's been, there's been arguments about uh, what's there. In fact, they now know that there's been several cities, at least five cities of Jericho that were built on top of one another over time, and they've used everything from radiocarbon dating to dating of pottery and things like that to figure out um, uh, who lived there and when. But um, three and a half thousand years ago, it looked much different. And we have uh, a rendering, an animation of what archaeologists think it looked like. 
so it was a uh, it was a city that was designed to withstand siege. This was a, a time that siege was the most common type of warfare or siege warfare. It was a double-walled city. It was generally thought to be impregnable. These walls were very thick and very tall. There was an outer wall and there was an inner wall. Uh, and uh, the gates could be shut and uh, everyone could basically hide inside and to understand or to withstand a siege that could last weeks or even months. And as I said, it was generally thought to be impregnable. And uh, this is where our story starts in chapter two of Joshua. Uh, so uh, Joshua has decided to conquer Jericho. And uh, if you will, please open your Bibles if you have them with you, or you can follow along on the screen. And we're going to read along in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. I'll pause here for a moment. It's, it's important to understand that sending spies was not a sign of unfaithfulness. It's precisely the sort of thing a good military general would do. Uh, send a reconnaissance mission. God has said, cross the Jordan in three days. And uh, uh, Joshua says, uh, well, maybe I'll send a couple of spies. It's been 40 years since we checked it out. <laughs> maybe we should send a couple of people over. So this is a good spy novel. If, the, if there was a soundtrack here, it would be, it would be intense. Um, and uh, they're going in to gather intelligence. They're about to conquer the city. It says they go to the house of a prostitute, a harlot. Now, some, have, um, some people have tried uh, to tone this down. They've been embarrassed by the fact, but the Hebrew is pretty clear. Uh, she really was what it says. Uh, it was a common profession in the region as the religion required temple prostitution. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an absolutely sinful, broken, heathen, pagan culture um, uh, full of sex symbols and sex practices. And the God of Israel is going to use Israel as his instrument to utterly destroy it for their sinfulness. But, but why the house of a harlot? Why would the two spies go into Jericho and go to the house of a harlot? And the Bible doesn't tell us why. There's no indication that they went there for immoral purposes. Most think they probably went because it's the, precisely the kind of place where travelers would not be noticed. Jericho sat on a crossroads, lots of travelers coming and going all the time for different reasons and uh, of different skin color and so on, and uh, it's precisely the sort of place you might expect those to go and probably wouldn't be noticed. But turns out they weren't unnoticed. In verse 2, uh, it says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So they didn't go unnoticed. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. This is, this is the prostitute mentioned in verse 1. The king sends a message to Rahab. Bring out the men who, uh, who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the man came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Here we see that Rahab was both 
clever and wise. She saw that judgment was coming. She knew that Israel was encamped not far away and was going to invade, and she was able to devise a plan to save her family. She outright lied to the king's men. They were standing in her door. This is heart-thumping kind of stuff. I mean, the king's men could have easily said, let us in, we're going to search the premises. And if they had found the spies, um, she would have easily uh, been caught. Uh, she would have been punished, most certainly probably killed and executed in the cruelest way possible that the king of Jericho could have thought of to set an example. So here we start to see uh, Rahab's faith in action and the cost that it could have incurred her for lying uh, to, the, to these police, I guess you could call them. Picking up in verse 8, we read, Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, Listen to this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all, uh, so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Saho and Og, the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So rather amazingly, uh, here we see a pagan, heathen, Canaanite, prostitute woman believe in the God of Israel. She believed in a new God, a God that was totally and diametrically opposed to the gods of Jericho. In the midst of their horrible, polluted worship laden with sex symbols and sex practices, Rahab, a prostitute herself, is able to actually verbalize and, and affirm a true theological position of who God is. She passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the, Hebrew of, the writer of Hebrews makes a tremendous statement. He parallels Rahab to the other heroes of the faith. In chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, um, the writer writes, By faith, Abel, dot, 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 Enoch, dot, 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 Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, Moses. And then in verse 31, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she believed. With one act of faith, she switched allegiances, she switched kings, she switched kingdoms, and she stepped into a new nation. But more than just shelter and more than just belief, she actually gave the spies what they were looking for. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. This is encouragement through the words of your enemy. That's the best kind. Uh, it's coming from the mouth of someone on the other side. Put it this way. If you're the captain of a, of, a, of, a, of a team and you're on the field, whether it's soccer or baseball or rugby, and you go out to flip the coin with the captain of the other team to see which end of the field you get or who gets the ball first, and the other captain walks out on the field like this, all rejected, and you meet the captain of the other team and they say, boy, we're, we're, we're racked with fear. You guys are awesome. We've seen your stats. You're going to crush us. We suck. You're awesome. And then you flip the coin and you walk back to your dugout and you say, man, we're going to kill these guys. They have like zero confidence. This is what the spies heard and this is what they uh, were able to carry back to Joshua. In verse 12, actually I'll, I'll, I'll go back to verse 12. 
before I carry on. Uh, Rahab goes on to say in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Notice the confidence of the spies here. When the Lord gives us the land. This is what they said. It wasn't, we will treat you kindly in the event we win or in the event uh, we, uh, we win. They knew that they would win. They knew that they would take the land and they knew that God would keep his promise. So in verse 15, she let them down by the rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Just imagine this wall here. It was part of the, of the wall, that, uh, the, uh, one of the protective walls. Uh, so her house butted up against that wall and she had a window. She said, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide there yourselves uh, there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all of your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible for them. As for those who are in your house, their blood will be their blood uh, their blood will be on our head uh, if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she let them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. My first observation here is that Rahab was not married. She does not mention... Uh, her husband, she does not mention any children, not even a boyfriend. She says uh, she wants to protect her father's household, her father, her mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And that'll, I'll, I'll come back to this point later. A second observation for now is that Rahab did not go with the spies. So she now has a belief in the new king and, and, and the God of Israel. She's conspired. Uh, she's given them intelligence on their reconnaissance mission. She could have crawled out the window. She didn't have any kids. She didn't have a family. She could have crawled out the window and took off with them, but she didn't. She stayed, and this was faith at work. Uh, she remained in this hostile kingdom until the point that it would fall. So she's now switched allegiances, and she's in a rather dangerous place. Again, if, uh, uh, if the king had ever found out that she had lied and that she was now believing in a new God, she would have been executed. She stood alone in a culture totally opposed to God. And um, she stood what was for seen as opposed to unseen. Or sorry, she stood for what was unseen as opposed to seen uh, until the point that the city would actually fall. Let's return to the text and just finish off just a couple of more verses. It, it says in verse 22, when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them, referring to the spies. Then the two men started back. 
They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, who was waiting patiently, I assume, and they told him everything that had happened. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So the deception worked. It was classic misdirection. Rahab said the spies went that way when really she sent them that way and the pursuers actually went that way um, and they escaped. And they got back to Joshua on the eastern side of the Jordan River and they reported all of their intelligence. And they now know that the people are shrinking in fear. And hearing that your enemy has absolutely zero confidence must have been great military advantage. Remember, this was an absolutely sinful, broken, pagan culture. Um, it was so broken in the sense that they, 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 one of the gods they served was called Molech, and they would, they would offer up living babies into fiery furnaces to the god of Molech. And God is about to cast judgment on the city and use Israel to utterly wipe it out. And later in the book of Joshua, we will actually see that Jericho falls. Uh, but, but for today, we simply looked at chapter 2. We've looked at this early reconnaissance mission of a couple of spies that have gone in and checked out the land, and we meet Rahab. But before we conclude, I want to share with you at least three take-home devotional thoughts. What, what have we learned uh, in this uh, historical book of Joshua, just chapter 2? Number one, Rahab's situation is not unlike our own. Rahab's situation is not unlike our own. So until Jericho actually fell, she was in a very dangerous, acute, uh, acute danger type of situation. She had um, uh, believed in a new god, and uh, she was now living in the territory of her enemy, essentially, if you want to think it that way. She was encompassed by uh, the king and all of their types of worship that she was no longer swearing allegiance to, and she could have easily been killed uh, or, uh, or, or kicked out of the city for, uh, for that, but she stays. And to some extent, this is exactly how the Christian lives today. We have sworn allegiance to a king, but yet we live in a kingdom that is controlled by, um, by, the, by the enemy of God, by Satan. And we must live in it until the moment that this kingdom falls, or that judgment comes. Um, so it would be unwise for the Christian to not expect spiritual warfare while we live in this kingdom. But of course, unlike Rahab, we now have the knowledge, the saving knowledge of the gospel that God sent his son. Now, this is part of the redemptive history. This was way, way, way before uh, the birth of Jesus and that he was uh, came in living flesh upon the earth. I don't, don't think I've, I mentioned it yet, but Rahab was King David's great, great grandmother. So this is this is way back. So she didn't have the knowledge that Jesus would come, live, and die on earth and be sacrificed once for all. Number two, the other take-home message here is that Rahab sits actually in the ancestral line of Jesus Christ. And uh, later in the book, we will see that she actually survives. Jericho falls, and her, her and all her family do survive, and she spends the rest of her life actually living with Israel. She is grafted into the nation, and her and all her family become citizens of God's people. Interesting question, though. How does she actually become part of the ancestral line of Jesus? She's single. Well, she must have gotten married. 
she must have had children. How else can you can those children have children and those children have children and eventually be, you become part of the ancestral line of Jesus? And she did get married and she did start a family. And here's the cool part. Scholars have actually pieced it together from hints from the book of Numbers and Ruth. Not only did she get married, but she married a guy named Salmon. And this was the son of one of the 12 great princes of Judah. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing that a prostitute from a heathen, broken culture becomes a princess. From rags to riches, and all his riches became hers. An illustration here, Francis Schaeffer wrote, in reference to you and me, in having been unfaithful to our creator, is not the whole human race a harlot? Is it not fitting that we would become the bride of Christ? By grace of God, we believe in Jesus and all of his riches and all of his righteousness is imparted on us from rags to riches. Our third point and final point is that God's grace knows no boundaries. Rahab's story is indeed a dramatic one. It reveals God's willingness to work with the less than perfect, the outcast, what we might see as unsuitable to accomplish his holy purposes. Recall the, the video that we started with, with all of that discarded and, and uh, wood that was turned into something beautiful. And uh, God can do that, and he does repeatedly. And throughout scripture, we can see what's almost divine humor, God choosing people you wouldn't expect to do extraordinary things. And um, he uses a stutterer to lead the people out of Egypt a weakling to defend the Israelites against the Midianites. He uses an inter infertile woman to be the mother of a nation, a forgettable youngest son to become the king of Israel, an unknown woman to become the mother of his son Jesus, unschooled fishermen to become the disciples of Jesus, and a persecutor to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In the case of Rahab, we see a woman with a sordid family history. She suffered disgrace. She suffered a tainted reputation. She almost certainly endured the contempt of others. Here's an interesting point. I think most of us would actually try to conceal that in our own families. If we had disgraceful events or disgraceful people in our own family genealogy, we would probably work hard to conceal it, but not Jesus. He goes out of his way to draw attention to the fact that uh, the, he has scandalous parts in his genealogy. Matthew doesn't hide it. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab is listed out as part of the genealogy of Jesus. God doesn't wait for us to be spotlessly clean. He doesn't wait for us to be perfectly mature in our faith in order to use us. In fact, he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in their own lives and the people around us. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to reconcile his enemies. He loves to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. This is the gospel that Jesus came to make notoriously unclean sinners like you and me clean. With disgraceful pasts and sordid family histories, he makes us all clean. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our king. Uh, we sang it earlier in our worship. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Only because of you are we made clean. Your righteousness is imparted on us. As sinners, 
we are redeemed and reconciled with a holy, true, living God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.